So, uh, as we get going here this morning, I get to uh, share that this is the final, final sermon on the Moses series. Aww. That is a quite a different response when I announced that there's going to be 23 sermons in the series and everyone laughed at me. And now you're all going, oh, there's so much more we could have uh, explored with these guys and gals and... Um, and yet we, we have to, all, things, all good things have to come to an end. So this is the conclusion of 24 sermons, actually. 23 turned into 24. And so uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, and if you missed any of the sermons of the, uh, or of the previous, they're all up online. You can listen to them all as, uh, as the year went on. And... Um, would invite you to do that. I've been joking with, um, with you guys that if anyone says to me that they jumped in at the sermon 23 or 24 and then they tell me they actually went back and listened to all previous 23 sermons, if you tell me that, I will give you $100. No one's taking me up on that and I might be lying. Um, you might just get a big hug. Uh, but no one's, no one's tested yet to see. So, uh, Anyway, this is where we're at. This is, we're going to be finishing off the, uh, our reflections this week. Next week is going to be, we're going to kind of still be with the Exodus generation, but it's going to be more of a worship experience. So uh, as we've done in the past, a couple times throughout the year, uh, we will go through kind of a, a order of song and prayer and a chance for us to give our hearts to God. There won't be a sermon but there'll be plenty of, uh, plenty of ways to uh, experience uh, God in the midst of his embrace and us embracing him. And we'll use some of the, the great material from uh, the Moses series that, that to lead us on. So that's, that's next time. Okay, so as, as we finish off and as I've been pondering, how do you sum up 24 sermons? How do you do that in a way that doesn't drag us through all the details of the previous sermons uh, and you kind of have to pick some central images, some central ideas that, that, that will help us get a, a bigger picture. And the one that was standing out to me was this image that we get throughout the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the books in the Old Testament where the story of the Exodus generation is found. One fascinating image stands out, and it's the image of a, a mother bird teaching her young one how to fly. And right, right, if you remember, right when Moses redeemed and rescued the Israelites and led them out of Egypt, and they were just getting to the place where they were going to experience God visibly and audibly in the desert. And God says to Moses, tell the Israelites that I brought you out of the land of slavery and I bore you on eagle's wings. There's this image that God is like this great mother eagle that and I've taken and rescued you from the hands of slavery, from the, the bird of prey that was trying to eat you. I've rescued you and, and, I've, and I've saved you. And, and we'll see that in Moses' final song that he sings in his life, or the last recorded song he sings for us in Deuteronomy 32, he comes back to that imagery uh, that I was like a mother bird teaching you how to fly. So yeah, I've got a few pictures here that I'll, I'll, I'll um, filter through once I get my thing going here. I just love these. I love, the, I love bird imagery in the, in, in the, in the Bible. And we, I love young birds. Aren't they so adorable? We've got these birds. And um, 
you know, I love birds so much in the Bible that I actually did my PhD dissertation on why the Holy Spirit shows up as a dove in the New Testament. So this is like this imagery is so close to my heart and these young ones. And I love this, this idea of God teaching us how to fly. So I don't know if that's a real picture or if that's fake. I hope that's real. I really want it to be real uh, because doesn't that, that's how it feels sometimes is we're, we're learning how to fly and, and, and uh, get out of the nest. Uh, so we have this, you know, these pictures of young this is a young eagle taking first flight here and learning how to, to fly on its own strength and power. And uh, uh, Moses says, as we'll read in just a minute, that I was, like, uh, I was like a mother bird who swooped under you and carried you on my wings as you were learning to fly. Now, eagles don't do that. Birds don't necessarily, oftentimes, like, there's, in the general record, bir- birds don't fly under their... their their um, young ones. Swans carry their young ones on their back as they swim, but there's not much of a precedent for birds carrying their young ones on their back and flying, even though that's what uh, Deuteronomy is going to talk about. Um, and, and yet, there are some instances where people that have gone out, I've really I've researched this, uh, there are some incidents where, where some uh, biologists, some ornithologists have gone out uh, and and. Uh, witness this. On one occasion, one person said, after flying confidently for a time over the canyon, a young raven targeted one of our gray pines for a landing. It crashed through the foliage into the interior of the tree where it thrashed and tumbled and bumped and bounced 15 feet down through the tangle of branches to the slope below like a steel ball. And it says that the mother raven looking at the young one in frantic flight came down and swooped down and somehow came near them and helped them up. Or uh, another, another uh, incident said, I was out in the, the desert watching uh, this, young, this, is, this young bird take flight. And it says, the mother started from the nest in the crags and rough, roughly handling, handling the youngster, she allowed him to drop, I should say about 90 feet. Then she would swoop down under him, wings spread, and he would alight on her back. She would soar over the top range with him and repeat the process, dropping him 90 feet and catching them uh, before the ground. Once perhaps she waited 15 minutes between flights. I should say the furthest she let him fall was 150 feet. My father and I watched him spellbound for an hour. So this, this is it's not a, a usual thing, but people have witnessed this. And um, of course... Uh, as, as, we're, as we're talking about the great metaphor of that happening, we have so much of experience in our own life, don't we, of feeling like we're dropping hundreds and hundreds of feet as if no one's going to catch us. And then finally, before we hit the ground, we, we sense that there's a, a presence with us. God comes and, and swoops us back up. And the process isn't God letting us drop. The process is God letting us learn how to fly. And that, to me, is a great image of the Exodus generation. And of course... Uh, we have this, mess, this, this thing that I talked about earlier. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you, will, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. 
but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And we get this sense that God is saying to the Israelites, you need to learn how to fly, not for your own sake, not because flying is fun, but the fate of the world depends on you learning how to fly. You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And God says that this priestly vocation, this idea that you are here to help bring the world to me who doesn't know me. Uh, and so we, we, we've got been with this map for the year, and this is the map of the Egypt. You see over here Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula and up into the Israel and the Holy Land here. And, and they began here in Goshen being rescued from slavery and were brought down at some point. Uh, there's, there's different views about where they were brought to, but there, um, one strong one is that they came down here and spent a year here getting to know God and getting to know his ways and what he was all about and what he was hoping for them. And then they came up to enter the Holy Land and had a really sort of unfortunate and bad experience where they realized that something was very wrong inside of their hearts. And so God led them through this painful journey for, 20, for 40 years here in this little area until they came up along the side uh, of, of the Jordan River here, and they spent some time, and this is where we ultimately find Moses before he enters across the Jordan. So we've spent some time with that map, realizing that um, that's been a long journey for them. And Moses is, I don't know if, if you know this, but Moses was something of a composer of songs. If you, if you read the scriptures carefully, you see that when he comes out, before they reach this area here, when, they, when, they're, when they're about here and they've been rescued from the Egyptians and God has allowed the, the Red Sea to swallow up the chariots that were chasing them, Moses composes a song. And it's a great song. It's a song of rescue. You'll find it in Exodus 15. Or if you look in the Psalms, this little, the great psalm, the prayer book of the Bible, Psalm 90 is written by Moses. And there the song is about human fragility and human frailty. We're like grass, uh, Moses talks about. Uh, we, we wither and fade, and a thousand years are like one day to the Lord, and how small we are in the midst of it. Well, if you follow the Bible all the way to the last book of Revelation, if you read carefully in Revelation 15.3, it says Moses has written a song in heaven, and the heavenly beings are singing this song. And this song is about honoring God and how, how the, the people, the court of his, his, his people are honoring him. So Moses is a song maker. He's a songwriter. He's a musician. Uh, but before he, before he blesses Israel and before he dies, he writes one final song. And that's what we're going to dig into today. And it's in Deuteronomy 32. And basically, it's a song of blessing for the people. Oh, yeah, I had a slide for that. A song of rescue, a song of human frailty, a song of honoring God. And finally, Deut Deuteronomy 32, a song of exodus blessing. He's about to die and pass over the reins, and he's blessing his people. And he begins this song by this, saying this, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop like the rain, my speech condense like the dew, like gentle rain on grass, like showers on new growth. Wouldn't you love it if every time I got up to give a message, I, just, I said something like that? <laughs> may my teachings drop like rain on you, and may it condense like dew. Should I start doing that? No? Okay. Um, but this is his way of entering. I love, I love the earthy imagery there. It's so beautiful. He says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. And Moses, after all this time, sees God as a rock. 
a place of stability, a place of shelter, someone who will be there for them when no one else will. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God without deceit, just and upright is he. And you have the Israelites as, long as, as well as the readers, all of us going, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be an inspirational song that's going to lift us up and make us, make us come into the presence of the Lord. And then he, he says this, Yet his degenerate children have dealt falsely with him, a perverse and crooked generation. And you're going, uh-oh, this song's taking a bit of a turn here for the worst. But what's happening is Moses is remembering. He's remembering the long and painful journey. And he's trying to reconcile this amazing, just God that has no deceit in him with what he's experienced because it's been painful. It's been very difficult. Um, and so it goes on to this, which I think is the heartbeat of this song. If you, if you say the song has a chorus, I think it's these, this here. And trust me, this is, gonna, this, this is a bit disturbing. See now that I, even I am he. This is God now speaking. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And no one can deliver from my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever when I wet my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired enemy. And all of a sudden, our breath is taken away, and we have to wrestle and realize this is the God that Moses, one of the greatest religious figures in all of history, ended up serving. And this is the God that our Lord Jesus decided to follow. And so we have to wrestle with this because we have to decide, is this a God whose ways are perfect, just, faithful, without deceit and upright? And then in the other songs, some of the highlights, he teaches us and satisfies us with his love. The king of nations alone holy. Or is this God a bloodthirsty, fickle, power-hungry swordsman? I'm just, I'm just giving you the Bible here. <laughs> um, so we... We, we, we face these two things and we say, how do we get through this? How do we go forward? How do we follow, become the people of God if, if the scriptures are saying this about God? And I've been trying to articulate throughout the whole of these many sermons that there's something far greater and far bigger going on in these scriptures than we have yet imagined, I believe, and, um, and, and that we have come to understand. And it's basically this. Ever rescuing, God is willing to take his people on long, painful journeys to the promised land. Or you could say it another way. Either we learn to abandon ourselves to God, or we feel abandoned by him. So, this isn't, this isn't easy stuff, but this is the culmination. This is Moses' final song. This is the, the conclusion to, to this great journey. And we have this almost horrific sense of who this God is. And so, uh, in order to get into this, ever rescuing, God is willing to take his people on long and painful journeys to the promised land. We, unless, unless we recognize that the world is far deeper in slavery than we realize, unless we recognize that the promised land is far more powerful and great than we realize. We're going to take the images of this, 
of, of, of God in the Old Testament and God in, in this generation as he must be bloodthirsty, fickle, and willing to um, go to no end to just make our lives miserable. If, if we don't see how deep the depth of the pain and the, the slavery of the world is, and we don't see how amazing the promised land is, we end up with a fickle God. But if we see how, how in, chains, in chains that the world is, how, how in such a bad state it's in, with God's children and his people uh, enchained in all sorts of slavery. And if we don't see that the promised land is in such an amazing, great place to be, um, if, if we begin seeing that we realize God is not fickle, that he is just deeply in love with his people and deeply in love with this world, that he wants to free it so, so uh, fully from these chains. And so as we... As we recognize this phrase, we, we, we link into the promised land, and we start there. What about this promised land? And, and here's what the, the scriptures say. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land flowing with streams, with springs and underground waters, welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So this is, this is the geographical sense. There's a place where these people were coming out of horrific slavery in Egypt into this wonderful land that, that God was describing. And elsewhere he says, um, on the next slide, oh, I guess that was the, the one. Elsewhere he talks about this land as the land where if you follow my precepts and follow my ways in this land, it will be like life as it always has meant to be. It will be a just place where there is no slavery, where there is no uh, pain or suffering or tears. And he says, I've given you a law. I've given you a way to do this. Set this up so it's just. And the law is something to rely on. It's something that puts us in relation to God. It helps us know his will. It determines what is best because the law instructs us. It'll help us to be a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, helps us correct the foolish, teaches children and others, and it is an embodiment of knowledge and truth. And if you think this is coming from Moses, actually this is what the apostle Paul in Romans uh, Romans 2 says about the law. So this is what happened. The law was set up as a way to say, I'm going to make this promised land the, the world as it's meant to have been all along. Uh, it's a ge geographical place. It, was, it began as a geographical pl place, but it's far more than just milk and honey. It's a place where God's will is done on earth, a place as God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you think about that phrase, you remember Jesus' own prayer, his own Lord's prayer says, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is promised land language. And ultimately, it's a world marked by selfless love. And God grieves so deeply for a world that is not yet this, for a world that's marked by selfish love where his will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God began to bring them. He said, I've brought you out of this place, this horrific slavery, and I'm bringing you into this land where all will be well, all will be perfect. But right as they got there, right as they were about to, to come into this land, something bad happened. Um, and earlier, Earlier, as, they, as, as Moses was reflecting on what had happened, he says this, I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and cruel slavery. 
slavery had done something to them. Slavery had broken them. Slavery had woven inside of them an inability to love selflessly, but just they would, they would have this propensity to keep on giving slavery to the world, keep on giving selfish love. And it says this, when they went up to the Holy Land, instead of trusting God, instead of entering, they cowered, they destroyed things, they gave up, they were fractured, frustrated, struggling to give to each other, struggling to listen, or struggling to serve. Their lives were, were full of a sense of meaninglessness, and they were crushed. And so when they, when they came to the Holy Land, what they did was they slandered their inheritance. They overblew their situation, making things seem worse than they really were. They minimized their own self and their identity in God. They were fatalistic, saying, if this goes wrong, I'm out. I'm back to Egypt. And we've, we learned that God does not like his people gathering against him in that way. This, this, this is the extent to which there was a glitch in their system. And if we look at that list, we can often find ourselves in that. We find ourselves not quite as we should have been, not quite as we have meant to be. Meant to be. And we realize that God is willing to take us to great extents in order to transform us, in order to, to reshape our hearts into selfless love. Um, so this is the world as it should have been. And, 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 and we think of this. Is this a, is this a fickle, sword-wielding, bloodthirsty God, or is this a God who's like a mother bird teaching us how to fly? And he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and I enabled you to walk with heads held high. God is saying, I want this world full of my children who walk with their heads held high, who have a deep sense of security and belovedness. And he says in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And it was I who taught Israel to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with bands of love. And we realize that all sorts of things that happen to us, God hates the evil in the world. He never creates it. He never inserts suffering in the world. But when it happens, when this broken world causes pain and suffering, we find that God will insert himself within it the minute after and begin, begin doing something with that suffering and doing something with that pain. And it's in us that, that he says he heals us and he grows us up and teaches us how to love. And so Moses goes on in, in his song in Deuteronomy 32, and he, he talks about this God. He sustained, God sustained Israel in a desert land and a howling wilderness waste. He shielded him, cared for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up, and bears them aloft on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He set him atop the heights of the land and fed him with produce of the field, nursed him with honey from the crags, with oil from the flinty rocks, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs and rams, bashing bulls and goats, together with the choicest of wheat. You drank fine wine from the blood of grapes. And God was saying, and though you didn't feel it, though you were in the desert for 40 years, though you didn't know I was healing you, I was doing that. And I was providing for you every step of the way. I was there underneath you when you felt like you were falling hundreds of feet. And yet I did not let you fall to the ground. I cared for you, even though it was a howling wilderness waste. And how often do our lives feel like howling wilderness wastes where we, where we feel like there's no, no green thing that could possibly grow again, no hope for our life going forward. And yet the, 
the, the powerful message of the Israelite generation is they were there too. They were, they were in that very spot. Um, and yet, something was wrong. Jacob ate his fill, the song goes on. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, bloated, and gorged. You abandoned God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abhorrent things they provoked him. They sacrificed to demons, not gods, to deities they had never known, to new ones recently arrived whom your ancestors had not known. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And it comes to this. We either abandon ourselves to God or we feel abandoned by him. Um, and if you remember, I'll say it this way. If we are a people who delight in the strong, powerful, secure, redeeming God and don't wrestle in our lives with the God who appears to us as bloodthirsty, fickle, if, if, if we don't have that wrestling as the Israelites did, I don't think we've yet wrestled with the living God. We haven't yet come into, into contact with this, with this God who had led Israel through the desert because they themselves are wrestling all the time. Is this a fickle, bloodthirsty God or is this the God who is going to protect us and keep us and keep us safe even though we may go through long, painful journeys? And it comes to this. And it is somewhat of a choice, though I think those of us who have spent time in slavery and trauma and addictions, uh, those of us who have been enslaved by all sorts of things, have a, a much harder time doing this than others. We either abandon ourselves to God and, or we feel abandoned by him. And this is what Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, who, who shows us this face on, what it looks like in the hour of his death, where it looks like God is going to let him fall and be mangled on the ground. Jesus says, Father, take this cup away from me. And right there, he could, he could have felt abandoned by God. Take this cup away from me. But he makes the hardest turn in all the universe. But not my will, but yours be done. He, abandoned, he abandons himself to God in that moment, rather than feeling abandoned by him. And we get this image going back to the Balaam narratives. You remember the Balaam narratives where there's this seer that comes out, this kind of... Um, a uh, sorcerer that comes out to curse Israel, but he couldn't curse Israel because God's protection was on Israel. And there, there's a little thing that says, a star shall arise out of Jesse. Or a star shall arise uh, and come forth uh, and, be, and, and be the ruler who, who sets everything right again. And we have this first glimpse in the Exodus generation, in the heat of their suffering, in the heat of the wilderness. Somehow, in some way, God is going to restore this place. And this grows throughout the scriptural tradition. This grows into a sense that not only will this star arise, but this star shall somehow bring forth dead things from the earth and bring things that have died back to, back to being until finally we get to the cross where Jesus allows himself to fall straight to the ground and die. God lets Jesus hit the ground so that we wouldn't have to. He lets Jesus hit the ground and his body is broken and Jesus dies. But God's saying, this isn't the end of it. This star shall arise. My son shall arise again. And as Jesus is resurrected on the third day, it's not just a good for you, Jesus, but what about the rest of us broken people? It's a promise that what happens to him is going to happen to us. 
And so all dead things will come back to life at some point in the great resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits that God, even though, even though in the darkest of times it may look like he lets us fall to the ground and get broken, that the final story will only be told when he resurrects all dead things back to life and to the new creation. And resurrection shows us that our meaning, I mean our suffering, is not meaningless. There's great meaning in our suffering. And some people come to this and think, oh, that's a great story. This is all a nice thing you tell yourselves because the world is such an awful place. This is a crutch that you, that you lean on or a fairy tale you believe in. This is so hard to stomach. But for, the, for those of us who recognize that, that this narrative is the, is the only way to true freedom, that the world is full of all sorts of ways that is just a variation on the theme of of suffering, a variation on the theme of slavery. All other ways we find are variations on the theme of slavery until we find that in this resurrected Son of God, we find that finally true freedom is offered for us. And that it, as we live in a society that is full of addictions and full of people trying to enslave each other and trying to uh, you know, beat each other down, that there is, a, there is a way which is marked by selfless love, and Jesus is doing it. And, and as we go through the long and painful journeys, somehow within us we find our ability to give selfless love back to the world widening. Something's happening to us. We are becoming a people who can walk around and create the world in a way that God has always meant it to be. The promised land is now the earth going forth. If you read Acts, if you read Acts going from... Uh, you know, Jesus' followers, after Jesus is resurrected and ascends into heaven, his followers start in Jerusalem, and they go to Samaria, and then it says they go to the ends of the earth. And the point is, is what was once the promised land in a little geographical area has now become, uh, the whole world has now become the holy land as God's people go out and bring his presence into it, as we give selfless love to the world in a way that we couldn't before. Uh, and so this, I, I gave you a few practical examples uh, of, of what do we do? How do we keep ourselves feeling abandoned to God rather than, or rather than feeling abandoned by him? And I said, praying is such an important thing. Staying in touch in a prayerful way is such an important way to, to keep reminding ourselves that God is not against us. God is for us. He's always rescuing. He's going to great extents to rescue us from the world, and he's calling us to rescue it with him. So prayer cards, I've, I've, uh, this was one of the things I've asked us to do. Uh, make, sometimes people make prayer cards and they, they pray for their family. They pray for people suffering. They pray for their friends and non-Christians and church leadership and small groups. And the people who practice this, as they continue to bring, they're priests. They're a holy nation of priests. They're bringing their lives before God constantly. That somehow, in keeping faithful in prayer, our faith gets kept alive. And we, we prevent ourselves from moving into these views of God as a bloodthirsty uh, fickle person. And finally, last time I've talked about uh, more of the contemplative meeting God in our daily lives, frequently calling God to mind, having a loving gaze, waiting on him in silent con conversation, working hard to carry on little conversations with God, not carefully prepared, but with purity and simplicity. Little prayers like this, my God, I am all yours. God of love, I love you with my whole heart. Lord, make me according to your heart. We stop in as often as we can for a moment and adore God from the bottom of our hearts to savor him by stealth, as it were, as he passes by.
So Moses, one of the greatest men of God in all of history, says to us, it'd be very easy for you to misunderstand God's purposes. It would have been very easy, Moses would say for me, did you see what he took us through? Did you see what he was willing to do to rescue us? Did you see the extents to which he, go, he went to make us and make us full of the type of love that he would want from us? Uh, don't fall prey to the thought that God is a bloodthirsty, fickle God. He's not. There's something deeper going on, a deeper purpose, that if we look hard enough and we look deep enough, we recognize is still going on among us today. This isn't even easy stuff, brothers and sisters. I wish I could have just come up here and told you that Moses had a sweet time in the desert and they played bocce ball and ate figs and all of that. It wasn't. If, we want, if, we're, if we're really listening to the Exodus generation, if we're really taking them seriously, we recognize that they went through hell and back in order to make it to the promised land. And um, yet this mi deep mystery was there among them. God was with them. God was a mother bird, always teaching them, always teaching them how to fly and become his people who don't slip into idolatry. And so we get this narrative. After Moses sings his great song, he sa it says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is the opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land. So there's the, here's the, the Jordan River in front of him. He sees all of the promised land, and yet he's not going to be able to enter. And he's on the top of this mountain, a 120-year-old man who could, could kind of still move around. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain. He saw the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Um, the Lord said to him, this is the land I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I, will, I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross over there. And it says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. He was buried in a valley in that place. He was 120 years old. It says his sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. Uh, when the Israelites wept for Moses... They said they spent 30 days grieving for this man that had led them through the desert. And they buried him there. Against my better judgment, um, I'm going to sing a song for you right now. This is, might not go well. I felt inspired this morning, last minute. Um, I come from the United States, uh, a land that was founded upon slavery a land whose economic base was founded upon the slavery of millions of African people. And out of this tradition, this African tradition, comes some of the greatest spiritual songs that we have in our, in our songbook. People enslaved, people knew that the, the, the world wasn't as it should have been. They, they, they're, they're trapped in this, this system that could separate them from wives and children and that would... Um, that they could be killed if they would just if they would try to um, become free, and so within this slavery they created this songbook. And as we as we as we think about Moses crossing over the River Jordan, the the the, the African American slave tradition found themselves with Moses there, wanting to cross over into the Promised Land, wanting to cross over into life as it should be, into a world that wouldn't keep them in chains. 
and they wrote this song called Deep River. This is not going to go well, but we'll give it a try. Um, Deep river, my home is over Jordan. Deep river, Lord, I want to cross over into campground. Oh, don't you want to go to that gospel feast, that promised land where all is peace? Oh, deep river, Lord, I want to cross over into campground. I love that, is crossing over to the gospel feast, to the promised land where all is peace. And finally, this is the promise, that the creator of the universe, who seems oftentimes so confusing, ultimately has in mind a land full of peace. And then Deuteronomy closes off saying, never since then, has there a prophet arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face? He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent to him to perform him in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in his entire land. And for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. And this, this theme of a land of peace comes up because, do you remember the very first sermon I preached on this? I asked you to imagine something. I asked you to imagine Jesus coming from his uh, home in Galilee down to the Jordan River to be baptized by, by John. And I asked you to imagine Moses on the other side thousands of years earlier having his final view and, uh, of, of the Holy Land before he dies. And at the Jordan River, at the place of uh, emancipation, uh, Moses dies. And from the Deuteronomist's perspective, he's the greatest ever. And yet, as time and generations go on, there is another that comes to the Jordan from the opposite direction and is baptized in the Jordan by his, his cousin John. And he says, I am the fulfillment of all the long hopes. Peace is going to be finally available through me. And Luke tells us after he was baptized that Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout the surrounding country. Jesus, filled with power in the Spirit, saying, you who once were slaves to your addictions and to, uh, to uh, the, uh, the traumas of, of, your, of your mental state, you who once were slaves to all sorts of things, can come to me in the because I have the power of the Spirit to set us free. And so I'm so excited that next year we get to spend a year with the second Moses. We're going to take off at the Jordan River where Moses leaves off, where Jesus takes the baton. And we're going to spend 24 sermons or whatever it ends up being on the second Moses. The one who says, finally in me, what you've been longing for all this time is ultimately true. Peace can be found with God where there was hostility. Freedom can be found where you were unable to do this through the law. So I'm excited about this uh, because uh, Moses was an amazing character, amazing person whom, through whom we can learn a lot. But the second Moses becomes the one that we bow our knee to and follow and who becomes our Lord 
And he, as Isaiah tells us, is the prince of peace. So before, before I call us up to the table here, I just want to say that this year has been an incredibly powerful and deep and rich year for me here at Grassroots. You have let me into your lives and into your hearts in ways that I could never have expected. Um, you have shown me a tremendous hospitality, and I am, I am so excited about moving forward together, uh, learning more about what it means to be the people of God who learn to create as much as we can, even though we're small and not always uh, smart, but uh, even though God, uh, oftentimes we fail and, and things will be challenging, God, God is with us and through us, he's wanting to help uh, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm excited as a community to continue into that um, as, we, as we go forth. There's lots to do, friends. There's lots of work to be done, lots of things. We still need to get to know each other in, in deeper ways. Uh, but I would invite us as we, we're going forward. Next week, I said we're going to do uh, a worship service that's all centered around uh, this final song of Moses that brings us into his presence and allows us to offer our hurts and our pains and our sorrows up to him. The week after that, I'm going to preach a sermon looking back on the year of all the things that have happened here at Grassroots, kind of an in-house uh, community's uh, conversation. Uh, and then in the summertime, I'm, we're going to launch out into a, a, a series on the church. Last year I did a, ser a series on community and how community works and how it works. This time it's going to be on the church. What does the church do? What is our job as the church? What's this church going to do in the coming, coming years? And so I'm excited, I'm excited about that. If, if you are um, new to grassroots and are wanting to know more about this today, for newcomers and for those who are interested in leaning in more at grassroots, there's a lunch for you. It's back in the study here. Uh, I'll get a chance to share who I am a bit more and um, who Grassroots is. And um, just to clarify, because I think I mangled my communication thread with Steve a bit about the kids. Sorry, Steve. Uh, just, to, just, so just to clear that up, um, during the summertime, there will not be adult life group and there will not be Sunday school, as usual, as we've done. But there will be the 1030 service for, uh, for those who will be in here. And then there will be a Roots and Shoots program for kids during this time uh, back in the back areas. Uh, so lots to be excited about, lots uh, as we move forward. So thank you, and thanks for uh, following me through 24 sermons. Uh, this has been a very rich learning experience for me, and I hope you've learned something too. I hope God has touched you and, and drew, drew you closer to him in the process. So we turn our attention finally to the table before us that's set here. We do this because Jesus, before he was... Uh, the, the night before he was arrested, or the night of him being arrested, the night before he was crucified, he said to his disciples, every time you gather, because it's going to be so hard for you to follow me in this long and painful journey, he says, every time you gather, remember that I came first. I took a step ahead of you. I walked the way of suffering that looks like selfless love. I want you to come after me. And so he says, take this bread and dip it in the wine here. It's juice. Take it and dip it in. And as almost as if a prayer, take my, my selfless love into you with a prayer that it will spread and nourish you. Uh, so this is what we do. Take, take a piece of bread, dip it in, and let this be a prayer today to you. Perhaps, perhaps you do tend to see God as a bloodthirsty, uh, fickle, 
God. Perhaps that is a propensity for you, and that's, that's, that's true for a lot of us and all of us at from certain times. Or perhaps you feel enslaved in something or enslaved by someone. Or perhaps you need uh, freedom in a way that, you, that you've been crying out but haven't been able to find. This isn't magical, but this is a way to say, God, I have brought myself to you. I have abandoned myself to you rather than feeling abandoned by you. So this is what this table is about. Everyone here is welcome, and it's all set for us. So come forth.